Welcome to Theodisc, the WTC podcast where we have accessible conversations with theologians and academics that we hope will help you grow in your understanding and encourage you in your desire to know God more. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and I'd love if you would subscribe to Theodisc on whatever platform you get your podcast from, and also leave us a review. You'll help us reach as many people as possible if you do. On today's episode, I'm really excited to be in conversation with Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen holds a PhD from Wheaton College and is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University in California. In her work, Carmen shows a real passion to help everyone engage with the Old Testament and to discover how it's still relevant for us today. She does this through her Torah Tuesday YouTube podcast and through her books, Bearing God's Name, and her most recent work, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters, where she explores what it means for us to be made as the image of God. I had a chance to talk with Carmen about her latest book, and I hope our conversation will provoke your own thinking about how you live out this core identity. Enjoy. Well, I'm delighted to have Carmen Imes on the Theodist podcast. Carmen, great to have you with us. Thank you for the invitation. It's nice to meet you. We're going to be talking today about your new book, uh, Being God's Image, and we'll get into that in just a second. But before we do, there are three questions that every first-time guest on the Theodist podcast has to answer, just so we can get to know you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, There's probably people listening who have read your work, Mm -hmm. but... Um, and, and we're going to talk about what's most um, recent for you mm-hmm. um, in a minute. But we want to find out things that are uh, constants for you, things that you return to. So the three categories we want to find out about are um, a book, a food or a meal, and a place. All things that you return to. So first of all, what's a book that you return to? You know, I find myself often referring to James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. And it's a little unusual for me to pick a book by a theologian because I, I, I read a lot in biblical studies and not as, mu- not as much in theology, but that book really grabbed me. And it's not that I keep going back and rereading it. It's that the ideas have so wormed their way into my thinking that I can't help but talk about it as I try to help people understand how the habits we have are formative, the things that we do shape us. And so now as I'm teaching Old Testament within shouting distance of Disneyland, like I can hear the fireworks every night from my house. And the other day we went to Disneyland and it took 16 minutes from door to door. So like we're that close. And so there's something about proximity to the entertainment capital of the world that shapes you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm constantly trying to push against that and like remember, remember the kind of person God wants me to be in the kind of community God wants us to be. This is not a show. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, and you you quote him a bit in your, in your latest book, don't you? I see that. I probably do. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's in there. Yep. You're right. Yep. Um, a food or a meal that you return to? I start just about every day of the week with Cheerios and granola for breakfast, <laughs> and I don't know why it works. It's not too sweet and not too bland. Oh, this it's, is in the same bowl. You're doing in the, the mix. same bowl. Like okay. I just I pour a bowl of plain Cheerios, not like. There's all these, I don't know about Scotland, but we have fancy Cheerios in the U.S., like 
they say multigrain, which sounds really healthy, but they're sweet. They like coated it with sugar. Mm -hmm. So I want plain Cheerios with a little bit of granola to give it some crunch and a little bit of flavor. And I have that almost every morning for breakfast. <laughs> it just works. <laughs> Never gets old. No. <laughs> and a place that you return to. I think one of my favorite places in the U.S. that I have visited multiple times is Silver Creek Falls in Oregon. Hmm. It's just so gorgeous. There, There's a hike that you can do that has, I think, 10 or 12 different waterfalls. And you're hiking through really drippy, sort of rainforesty territory. Lots of ferns and lots of trees. And you just, when you're breathing, it feels like you're breathing really clean air and the, there's so much greenery that it's not hot. And I could go back there every year and, and just soak it in. This is a common theme with theologians that I speak to. It's getting out into the woods or into the oh, forest yeah. or somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, apart from Jason Myers, who said his favorite place is the library, which I, I thought was kind of sad. Oh, I, I really like libraries too. So my husband and I just went on a cruise to Alaska uh -huh. and my mom was really tickled when we got back and told her that we kept finding libraries <laughs> so we stopped in Ju at juno and port and it's like oh there's a public library now mostly it was because it had wi-fi and we didn't have any wi-fi on our trip so we didn't want to pay the big bucks for wi-fi but there was also a library on the cruise ship which just about made my year because i had a whole week of no housework to do just hanging out with my husband and there were all these books waiting to be read <laughs> i loved it <laughs> well i follow a couple of instagram accounts that are just pictures of libraries from around the world so i, oh, yeah. I can't really talk i can't yeah talk. well brilliant thank you now Carmen, we know a little bit about you. We can get into talking about your work that you've you've just released um, and being God's image. Now, it's interesting to me that your your previous book was called Bearing God's Name. Mm -hmm. You would think that the simple title for this other book, which is related to it, yep. um, would be um, Bearing God's Image, but you didn't go for that. So you're clearly yeah. making a distinction here. I am. So what's going on there? Yeah. And congratulations to you for not messing up the title. Most podcast hosts do because they're so similar. And I, I kind of set myself up for this. Uh, I am convinced that the image of God is not something that we bear, because if it was, we could set it down. It would be something external to ourselves, not part of who we are. I'm convinced that the Bible teaches us that the image of God is our human identity. That's who we are. There's no way we can set it aside or lose it. And so I, I'm, I was very deliberate in choosing to call the book Being God's Image. And part of what I'm pushing back on is the widespread ways we talk about the image of God as bearing the image or even imaging God. People turn image into a verb. And I'm pushing against that, not because I think these people are completely wrong about everything, but because I think if we are deliberate about the way we talk about it, it will help correct some uh, maybe oversight or, or places where we need better nuance. The image of God is not something we do. It's who we are. And that's vitally important. I mean, sometimes we get playful with theological language. And I hear, I, I hear a lot of that about imaging mm -hmm. God. 
Yep. Um, but if something as fundamental as this, you're right, maybe we need a little more precision in how we talk about it. Yes, I think precision will pay off for this. And I don't go around stopping people, like cor- correcting the way people talk about the image necessarily. But I do think that if I keep persisting in 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 saying we are the image of God, then maybe it will help shift our thinking towards a biblical model of human personhood. And this inability to lay down image, or it's not something that is an, an additive to us, mm-hmm. that has clear implications for how we understand ourselves and how we live ethically in the world. Yes, yes. Especially how we understand others. <laughs> um, because we can easily look around our world and find people who we don't think measure up. Mm. They're not as great as we are in whatever category. or They're not like us in some way. Or we see them doing bad things and we want to separate ourselves from them. And this is the radical teaching of the Bible that every human being is the image of God. There's nothing we can do to disqualify ourselves, which means every human is worthy of dignity and should be, their life is worth preserving, et cetera. It's just so many different ways we could uh, tease that out. And do you think, is that an idea that we find uniquely in the Bible? Mm. I I don't know where else it would come from. <laughs> it's certainly not this, it's not really an ancient Near Eastern value yeah. to preserve life at any cost or to treat people with dignity. Humans, in, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, humans are, humans exist to serve the gods by doing the work they don't want to do so they can sleep more. And so we're dispensable. We're we're right. just cogs in a machine, uh, and you can see that in the way Pharaoh treats the Israelites in Exodus. He's treating them as machines to prop up his empire, and he's just acting like the gods that he worships act. Yeah. So when you see that throughout the scriptures, and even in the way that we live our lives, when we start to treat people as something that we can use for our own purposes. Mm-hmm. We're becoming detached from kind of God's intention for humanity. Yes. We don't lose the image, yeah. but we we fail to live in alignment with our status or our identity as God's image. If if that's how we're treating other people, we're not living in alignment with, with how we're supposed to live. So maybe we can dig into that a little bit because you just said something there about we don't lose the image. Yeah. And again, theologians have spoken many ways about that idea what effect has sin had on um the fact that we are image bearers Mm -hmm. there's some who say it's it's in some sense cracked Mm -hmm. others who say it's been lost what what do you say most of the people who most people who suggest that the image has been diminished in some way are either concluding that because they look around at our world and they see people living in depravity and sin and they they just can't imagine how this is compatible with the image, or they turn to Genesis 5 and there's a little bit at the beginning of the chapter about God made humans in his likeness and then Adam had a son named Seth in his likeness, in his image. And so they say, ah, there it is. Humans used to be the image of God. But after the sin of Adam and Eve, the the children are now in the image of their parents instead of in the image of God. So that's the that's the logic that I've heard expressed. 
uh, when when people talk about having lost the image, I don't think this works exegetically because if you flip ahead to Genesis chapter nine, after the flood, God tells Noah that he's going to hold people accountable for human blood. You can't go around killing humans. And the reason given in, in Genesis nine, six is for as the image of God has God made humankind. So the reason we can't kill people is they're the image of God. That's after the fall, after the flood. It appears that it's still intact. So I think um, the view that we've lost the image is an overreading of Genesis 5. The, the Bible does not say in Genesis 5 that Seth is no longer the image of God. I think it's offering an analogy for us. Seth is the image of Adam the way we are the image of God, or we are the image of God the way Seth is the image of Adam. So we can all imagine a resemblance between parent and child or the bond between parent and child that comes just by virtue of their biological link. And we have that sort of biological link with God in a way that we are God's children. We're part of God's family. So I think Genesis 5 is trying to define for us, flesh out a little bit, what does it mean to be the image? It means to be God's family. Yeah. Uh, and let's let's back up a little bit because you do start the book talking about Genesis 1, which is the perfectly logical place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you you do your very best to stay out of um, <laughs> certain controversies that that brings up. Yeah. I like the way you say it, similar to the way that John Walton talks about Genesis 1, where it's, it's helpful to not get lost in the how and the when mm-hmm. and really to focus on why. So how does this yeah. why approach help us get to the bottom of what it means to be made in God's image? Yeah, I think... I th- or as God's image, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, you know, we both knew what you meant. Um, I think, yeah, so Genesis 1, we end up co-opting it for the scientific debates we want to have, debates on science and religion or science and the Bible. And it has relevance to scientific debates, but if we only go to it reading for that answer, we might miss the answer it's trying to give us, which is answering ancient questions about purpose. And so ancient people were not, by and large, wondering where matter came from, so that Genesis 1 answers where matter came from. They're wondering, what am I here for? Where do I fit? And what job have I been given to do? And I think that's the really profound question that gets answered in Genesis 1. We see God bring order to the cosmos. He he separates light and dark, separates sky and water. He, He gathers the seas into one place so that dry land emerges. And then he populates each of those domains with residents. And the very last resident he creates is humanity. And humans are told... Uh, that were made as God's image so that we may rule over the rest of creation. And so there's so much that can be unpacked there. We're the crown of creation. We work side by side with one another to exercise God's rule, exercise dominion, not in a way that rapes the earth to get what we can out of it, but in a way that um, ensures the flourishing of creation, the flourishing of animals. I think it's interesting in, in at the beginning. Oh no, it's not. It's not chapter two. It's chapter one, verse twenty nine and thirty. It talks about who gets to eat what. 
<laughs> and humans and animals are given the same food source, right. which means we're going to have to learn to share. And I think that's interesting to see that right there from the get-go that we actually have to, our dominion does not involve keeping everything for ourselves, but it, it, it involves ensuring that animals have enough to eat too. And so that's, yeah, that's all fascinating. And we, we miss out on all that if all we're worried about is how long it took God to make everything. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, um, to follow on from that and kind of spiritual formation circles and language, you hear a lot of, um, um, talk about we need to be human beings before we are human mm. doings mm-hmm. and I get a little bit cynical about that sometimes because I think that's kind of a clever wordplay and then I was reading your book and I thought oh no it actually <laughs> oh, works no, there's a theological <laughs> root to this <laughs> so it's biblical so after I told myself off um for being a cynic um you really insist quite strongly I I, I felt that um that the image of God is concrete mm-hmm. and is primary over function. Yes. Now, just in what you were saying there about Genesis 1, it's very difficult to get very far without talking in some sense about function and the commission that humans have been given. Right. But still you say that's a that's a follow-on from this concrete thing that is the image. It's a consequence, right? Right. Uh, what we do on earth, the so that you may rule, the so that part of it is the consequence of being the image. It's the implication of being the image. It's not the content of the image. And so sometimes people will, will make ruling, they'll put an equal sign. Ruling is the image of God. You know, the Imago Dei means we rule. And I think the problem with that is that we have, um, you know, you have a six-month-old baby. Uh, how well are they doing at ruling the earth? They they don't function very well as a ruler yet. And I'm thinking of my 95-year-old grandmother, who also, you know, her sphere of influence has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Mm-hmm. Now, mainly, what she does is color all day long. She has colored pencils and she colors adult coloring books all day long. Um, which is bringing beauty and order to a very small corner of the world. She hasn't lost that completely, but um, because of dementia, she doesn't go out. She, you know, her sphere of influence has shrunk. So would we say that the six month old or my grandmother are no longer human or they're no longer the image of God fully? If we attach rulership exactly to the image, then we start to have a, a hierarchy of people who are more or less human. And so that's why I think it's really important for us to say every human being is the image of God. It doesn't matter your capacity or your ability and that it's that identity can't be lost. Now, to the degree that we're able, we're invited to participate in certain activities that are God-given. So our work matters, but it doesn't make us matter because we already matter. We're already the image of God. And so it's it's a joy to lean into the work God's given us to do, but it doesn't constitute our very selves to do so. I happen to be at work today on what is a holiday for everybody else. I missed the memo. It's the 3rd of July in the U.S. as we're recording this. Everybody else had a day off. I wasn't thinking of this as a holiday. Tomorrow's the holiday. So here I am working. But being at work when nobody else is doesn't make me matter more than anybody else, Right. right? Um, this is not, this doesn't constitute myself. 
So that's the distinction I want to make. Okay, so what happens then when, because it's very common for people to look for identity in their career and in their work. So oh, yeah. that what kind of effect does that have then in our, our understanding of our, of our value? Yeah, I mean, if if someone finds their identity in their work, which we all struggle with to some degree, I, I'm sure, then retirement becomes really difficult or disability, like if there's a temporary or permanent disability, if you're suddenly unable to work because of health reasons, it can be very demoralizing. It can, it can take aim at who you feel like you are and you feel like your selfhood is being diminished. And that's why it's so important for us to root our identity and our value in what God says is true of us, which does not require any effort on our part. So somebody who's turning in their keys because it's time to retire is not losing their personhood. Their personhood was never grounded in their work. It it's work is something we can joyfully do in response to who we truly are. Yeah. Yeah. So in the middle section of the book, you then move into talking about um, after um, the effects of sin and um, you say we can, fa- I think you've said already in this podcast, we can fail to live well as God's image. We never stop being God's image. Mm-hmm. So then there's this idea of wisdom, yeah. um, our need for wisdom and where we where we find that. We see that struggle throughout the Old, the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So... Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the concept of wisdom yes. and our ability to live out of our sense of being the image of God? Yeah, some people have been surprised that I take this to tour through the wisdom literature in a book about the image of God because it never uses the phrase "image of God" never appears in the wisdom mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. The reason I do is because wis- the wisdom books of the Old Testament—Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs are wrestling with questions about what it means to be human. They're wrestling with suffering and finding meaning in our work and and in life and sexuality and navigating life's choices. These are things all humans need, right? So we're all wrestling with these things to some degree. And I think there's an intrinsic connection between these books and the story of Adam and Eve, where they're presented with a choice in the garden And they're told not to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, not because God doesn't want them to know good and evil. He does. That's part of what they need is to grow in maturity so that they can discern between good and evil. What he wants is for them to look to him to find out how to define that, not to try to go out and figure it out on their own. Good and evil are not self-discovered or self-determined. And so that's, I think, a key aspect of the quest for wisdom in scripture, it's always grounded in the fear of Yahweh. It's only as I as I look to God to to tell me what is right and what is not right that I truly find wisdom that I can exercise in real life. And that's where Jesus enters into the picture and you you spend a, a lot of the book yes. <laughs> talking about Jesus, which is which is a great thing. Yes. <laughs> It's great that they let me talk about Jesus because I'm an Old Testament scholar, so you know. Right. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but but the sweep of the book is such that you're kind of taking in this the entire yep. narrative of Scripture. Right. So this idea about who do we look to, how do we know, what does it mean 
to live as a human um, in God's image. Yeah. You, you arrive at Jesus and you say this, and this struck me when I read it, Carmen. Jesus is not the image of God because he is God. Jesus is the image of God because he is human. Mm-hmm. And could you unpack that for us a little bit? <laughs> yeah, this is um, this is something that I came to backwards maybe because I kept coming across theologians who I, whose work I respect, um, but who were making statements like, only Jesus is the image of God. The rest of us aren't actually. We're in the image of God, but we're not the image of God. And I don't see an exegetical basis for that. I mean, the the exegetical basis for that view is very thin in my view. It's one preposition, one letter in Hebrew that's attached to the word image. It's the letter B. So B-tselem is in the image or as the image. And I explain in the book grammatically why I think as is a better translation than in. But regardless of what preposition you put there, um, I think it's putting too much weight on that preposition to say that that is the thing that stands between us and being God's image. Uh, I just don't think it can bear that weight. So I, I think sometimes people come to the conclusion that Jesus is the only image of God. This is, I'm not saying that theologians are saying this, but I think on a popular level, we might assume, oh, Jesus is the image of God. Of course, he's divine. But God doesn't need to, you can't, I'm not the image of Carmen. I am Carmen. Right. You can't be both. You're either either one or the other. So to say that we are the image of God does not mean we're divine. It means we represent the God who is divine. And so Jesus becomes the image of God when he becomes human. Uh, he he represents God physically on earth in a way that he wasn't able to do in the spirit realm. He takes on flesh. And I argue in the book that that this is what it truly means to be the image is to be concrete, to have a physical body. Our embodiment is what qualifies us to be the image. So yes, Jesus is the image of God because he's human. Obviously, he does a better job of living it out than we do. And so there is a qualitative difference between us. And that's why the New Testament tells us that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We look to him to find out how to live congruently with our identity as the image of God, because he lives in full alignment where we do not. But it's not just enough for Jesus to be our moral example. So he just doesn't come and say, hey, guys, here's how you do it. No, of course not. Yeah. He he also dies for our sins. Yeah. He also brings atonement. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then even further, there's what happens with the resurrection. So Jesus enables us to walk into um, a new creation, a new way of being. Yes. I was just going to say there's so much about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension that has implications for what it means to be human. Because if these bodies were just something to be discarded, so that we can go to heaven when we die and we can float around, then Jesus didn't need to come in the flesh. But not only did he come in the flesh, but he was raised to life in the flesh. He, his resurrection body is flesh and blood, flesh and bones. And he ascends to heaven as a human in a human body. And that tells me that the future of humanity involves embodiment. Paul says this in First 
Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's not just like, yes, cool. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. What we believe is that every human being is going to be raised from the dead, that our bodies will be raised up again. And those of us who've placed our faith in Christ and are part of God's family will then live on forever in these bodies. And on this and on this earth. And on this earth, which is also controversial. I've been checking the mailbox every day waiting for hate mail because I toy with some uh, beloved doctrines Mm -hmm. of eschatology and I I don't toy with them. I dismantle them (laughs) (laughs) and um, try to show how what the Bible actually teaches is not that this planet is going to burn to a crisp and we're going to go off somewhere else. People read second Peter and they assume that's what it's saying. But I believe that the fire that's coming for this earth is a refining fire, not a destroying fire. And that what what's going to happen is God is going to renew and restore this earth so that we can live on it. And it won't have any of the evidence of uh, sin and death and destruction and, you know, evil world empires and oppression and all that, that will be gone. So, where we start is really important. When we go back to Genesis 1, the, the way we yep. begin that story has real implications yes. for what we understand going forward. Yep. And where we end is important yep. because it also has real implications. And all this is kind of centered on what Jesus does, what Jesus, how Jesus recapitulates the creation story and the story of Adam and Israel yes. and the future that Jesus points to in his resurrected, mm-hmm. embodied state. Yeah. And so it seems to me, Carmen, that like the gospel that we tell and the lives that we live have real implications beyond just some kind of let's try to be good people until we get out of here. Absolutely. Or let's tell people. You know, I've often heard the gospel say, you know, it's bad news before it's good news. Yes. But what if it's good news yeah. before there's some bad news yes. and then there's good news, right? Please, can we get back to that? <laughs> yes. I, You know, it's you're a sinner and you need a savior and God sent a savior. And yes, you are a sinner, but that is not where the Bible story starts. It doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 with a glorious vision of God's created world that he called good. And then he made humans. He made us. And he said, we are very good. So we have an inherent dignity and worth and a job we've been given to do. And that's what's been derailed. That that uh, job that we were supposed to do, that's what gets derailed. In chapter three, we get uh, we have disruption in our relationship with God, and that's what's being restored through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we start the story in Genesis chapter three, uh, we're, we're not giving people a picture of what it is they're supposed to do or who, who they are in this new economy. Yeah. And so how we treat people, how we treat the planet that God has given us, yep. how we how we relate to God Himself, all, yep. all of those are more than just kind of ethical philosophies. This is about living into the identity that God has always intended for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, great. I'm aware of time. I just want to ask you one last question, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, um you know, the beginning of the scriptures, we have the sense of God hovering over what is formless and void and bringing order out of it Mm -hmm. and function out of it. And at the height of that, he places humans, 
you know, in the garden. Yes. And I, I, I just thought about that today, that in our culture, in our time, I think there's a lot of people in the world who feel like their lives are formless and void, that there is no order, there's no shape mm. to it. Mm. So what would you say to people that feel that way, who harbour those feelings, mm. who are looking for who they are yeah. and are not satisfied with what they're finding? Yeah. The first thing I would say is the glorious news that it is not up to you to determine who you are, that who you are is a truth that's born in the heart of God. God determines who we are, that our identity is not self-determined, but it's given by God. And that givenness of our identity frees us from the anxiety of having to become something that we're that we're not. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is yes, there's a lot of disorder in this world and no one person can solve all of it. But because of who God made us to be, because we're the image of God, we've been given a task, a shared task with other humans of bringing order back into creation. And so we can begin to lean into that and we can't do everything, but we can bring order to our corner of the world. And if we all did that, then every corner of the world would be taken care of. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, if those of you who are out there listening and who are wrestling with that, this feeling of aimlessness, you have a, an identity given to you by God and you have a purpose that was born in the heart of God. And you can lean into that purpose. You So you have agency, but you don't have all the responsibility because God is ultimately the one who's bringing order. It's just the joy of participation. It's like a child doing chores with their parent. You know, it's the parent who really knows how to get things done and the child helps imperfectly. But we we all have the joy of working alongside our Heavenly Father and, and doing that work however imperfectly as best we can. And he's going to keep teaching us how to do it better. Excellent. Thank you. I feel mm -hmm. encouraged. <laughs> Yay. Um, if you're, you know, you're, as you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to pick up Carmen's book and dig into some of these ideas where we've only been able to really skim the surface of um, this this kind of broad sweep that, that Carmen paints in the book. Um, so, so go and have a look for that, Being God's Image. Um, and Carmen, I'm just really delighted that you were able to spend this time. Thank you for coming on the 3rd of July. Yes. Even though you didn't think it was a holiday. <laughs> I really appreciate you giving This was time. fun. This was more fun than a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy tomorrow. Thank you. Um, and um, really um, wish you the best. And um, hopefully at some point in the future, you're able to come back on and talk about other things that you're, you're writing and working on even as we speak. So yes, thank you. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Kenny. It was great to be with you. Well, thank you, Carmen, for such an eye-opening conversation which will hopefully inspire us to live our lives fully as the image of God. Do check out Carmen's book, Being God's Image, for some more insights into this amazing truth. In our next episode, which will be out in a fortnight, as per our usual schedule, Kenny will be chatting with Dr. Alistair Wallace, who teaches Old Testament studies at WTC. They will be discussing how the narratives of Judges and Ruth 
intersect and how we can compare and contrast the concept of God's faithfulness in these two books. Thank you for listening to episode 22 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 23 with Alistair Wallace on the intricacies of the books of Judges and Ruth. Bye for now.